Oh, well, uh, I love to eat. <laughs> I eat health foods, um, organic foods, dairy products. Uh, dairy products. No, no, no. That, that's a no-no. Dairy products killed my uncle. Oh, that's awful. Yep. He was hit by a dairy truck. That's terrible. His last words were, take the cheese off my chest. Oh, that's awful, Kermit. Uh, yeah, well, don't blame me. I didn't write that. Hi-ho, and welcome in once again to A Feat of Lunatic Daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad, and I'm here with my mechanical wind-up podcast co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, are you ready to give him the old razzle-dazzle? I might need another few turns of the screw, but yeah, I, I think we should be fine. <laughs> okay, cool. How you doing? Uh, it's It's been an interesting week, for sure. San Francisco's shutting down again as of uh, this recording, so... yeah. Yeah, everything's going to be shutting down soon, I think. But it's nice to focus on other things, like our show tonight. Like watching The Muppet Show. It's a safe space. A lot of people consider the episodes we watched today kind of the first real episodes of The Muppet Show. That makes sense. Nothing against the, the hosts from the episodes that we covered last time, but these ones feel better integrated. These are the ones that they recorded, you know, they, they made their two pilots with kind of a skeleton crew almost in, in London while they were getting everybody together to move over to London to make the bulk of the show. And so these are the first two episodes that they made with like everybody there. The episodes we watched last time were those pilots that were chopped up and edited and cut together with footage they shot later. These that we watched today are just flat out kind of just the first full episodes that they made. We will also see that they took a slightly better approach with how to use the guests this time around. Let's get talking. Welcome. And what a show we have for you tonight. How would you like to see 4,000 woodpeckers performing an aerial ballet while 87 gorillas and two dozen elephants do the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy? Well, forget it, because instead we've got Joel Gray as a guest star, which in a way is like having all the excitement of everything I mentioned without having to clean up afterwards. This episode 103, produced uh, May of 1976, premiered in the UK and in the US in September and October, respectively. Directed by Peter Harris, again, again, he was one of the two directors that's going to kind of go back and forth directing episodes of the show. Written by Jack Burns, Jerry Jewell, Jim Henson, and a guy named Mark London. It's a new name for us. He was a Laugh-In writer. He'd written like 99 episodes of Laugh-In and would go on to write another 21 episodes of The Muppet Show. So he's a, you know, going to be a regular Muppet writer. The uh, very special guest star for this week is Mr. Joel Gray. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Joel Gray. Joel Gray was born Joel David Katz on April 11th, 1932, in the heart of rock and roll, Cleveland. You know what? I don't need to do this, because uh, Kermit did it for me. You know, uh, I, I understand that you come from an old show business family, don't you, Joel? Yes, actually, you, I do. You appeared on stage at the ripe old age of 10, huh? Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. I understand you were also born in Cleveland, Ohio, but now you live in New York with huh? your wife, Joe, and your two children, Jimmy and Jennifer... Uh, plus three cats, uh, two dogs, a turtle, and three frisbees. Huh? Well, how'd you know all that? Yeah, let, let me ask you something. Well, now that you're with us, uh, why don't you, um, <clears throat> why don't you just uh, tell us a little about yourself? Actually, there's not much left to tell. Oh, boy, what a dull guest. Joel is mostly known as a singer and a dancer and an actor. Uh, he's most famous for his role as the master of ceremonies in the musical Cabaret. He originated the character on Broadway in 1966, which won him a Tony. 
And then he was in the Bob Fosse's film adaptation of it is six years later, which won him an Oscar. And he's one of only nine actors to win a Tony and an Oscar for playing the same role. I don't know the others. The only one I know for sure is Rex Harrison won the Oscar and the Tony for My Fair Lady, but I'd have to look up to get the rest of the list. He would continue working on Broadway, where he was in the original cast of of, uh, The Normal Heart, in the original cast of Wicked. He was the Wizard of Oz. And he was also in the 1996 revival of Chicago, playing Amos. He's done a lot of film and TV, showing up in programs such as Oz and Alias and CSI, and was also a recurring villain on the fifth season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He's still around. He's 88 years young. The fun fact I found out about him is his daughter is Jennifer Grey of Ferris Bueller, Red Dawn, and of course, Dirty Dancing fame. She is the baby that you do not put in the corner. If you've never seen Bob Fosse's film of Cabaret, highly recommend it. My daughter has been going around singing a song from it all day today. As we like to do every time, we like to talk about new faces or returning faces. Not a whole lot of new faces this week, huh? Kind of. I mean, we, we're we seeing more integration of people that we've seen before into the Muppet show. So it's sort of like a, a second arrival. Yeah, we're seeing, because in this first episode, in 103, uh, we see Crazy Harry for the first time since, I think, the Valentine special. No, from se- since Sex and Violence. Gorgon Heap, which is a, a, the big purple monster character that the, the, during the uh, Sherlock Holmes one. Uh, he was also in Sex and Violence, but this is his first appearance on The Muppet Show. Baskerville the Hound is back, played by John Lovelady, who's still with the show at this point. It's his first time on The Muppet Show. And the big one was, this is the first time Sam the Eagle was on The Muppet Show. He was, I believe, originally on the pilots, but was in the segments that got cut out. The first thing I noticed about this episode was that it, it seems really built around the guest as opposed to the first two we watched. Yeah, and it, it continues that sort of trend toward cohesion that we've been seeing since the, the original pilots. The backstage and the front stage do seem better, or I guess more complimentary. Well, yeah, because they were shot together. They were meant to be, right? They were scripted together as opposed to the first two episodes where the backstage was created months later. These are all like just the episodes as written. What it did with this one's Joel Gray, mostly known. Again, this was 1976, so he, this was after his Tony, after his Oscar, and he was very famous for being the master of ceremonies in Cabaret. And so this episode has a Broadway theme to it. Not necessarily backstage, but the three big musical numbers in this episode are Broadway numbers, including his most famous Broadway number he's ever done. As usual, we start off with the Muppet Show theme. Uh, there is one little oddity. I don't know if you noticed this. It's the normal season one opening number. But there's one little moment where Kermit says, um, Our show tonight will feature some stuff that looks like this. And it cuts to a shot from the Comedy Tonight segment. It's the only time, literally in the entire Muppet Show, it's the only time that little part of the song appears. It starts off with a big musical number. Which was, structurally, it felt weird to me. I... I'm not super familiar with a lot of Broadway musicals, but it seemed like a second show intro, which it it was fine. I, I liked the song, but it was the placement felt kind of weird. Comedy Tonight is the opening number for A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. It's a song by Stephen Sondheim, actually, um, and it is, which, is a, which was a Broadway musical again. And it was, it was the opener. Zero Mustel, I believe, originated the role. And he would come out on stage at the very beginning and tell the audience, basically, like, this, we're going to laugh tonight. And that's what the song is. And I, I guess what they're trying to do here is just juxtapose it with the violence that's happening. <laughs> I don't know that I've... I've necessarily seen this particular sketch before. Like some of the other ones that I've will will cover later, I've seen independent of the episode. But this seems like one that should be better known. But maybe it's 
It's got a very specific target audience. I'm not sure. It doesn't have any of the major characters in it. It's a bunch of frackles and whatnots, basically. There's a little girl, Mary Louise, and Crazy Harry's in it. But besides that, like, it's not, you're not going to see a clip from it very often just because it doesn't have the frog in it, right? It's just not a popular bit. It's basically just they're singing Comedy Tonight, which is, again, just a big song about comedy. And they're doing kind of dark and violent things. They're almost like in an alleyway, like a dark alley. Yeah. And they're all kind of creepy looking monsters. So I guess the joke is the is the juxtaposition of Comedy Tonight and then this kind of darkness. It's, but you're right, though. It's a, it's a good number. Then we get to our backstage plot. And our backstage plot for this episode is Fozzie has come up with a new strategy for creating jokes. He just asks people to say a word and he'll make a joke out of the word, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there are a lot of stand-up comics that do things like that or will like get a topic or ask someone what they do for a living and then do an entire... That's that's like what you do at an improv show. Mm -hmm. Give me a name, give me a place and we'll, we'll come up with something. But yeah, Fozzie has decided he's got this new way of making jokes where he just takes a word and makes a joke out of it and it annoys the hell out of everyone. This is a good moment to talk about Fozzie. You'll notice when you watch this episode that Fozzie Bear does not sound like Fozzie Bear. Last episode, we watched a lot of the Fozzie stuff was reshoots. It sounds like our current idea of Frank Oz playing Fozzie Bear. But in these episodes, and this is why they, they to me, feel more like actual first episodes than the ones we watched last time. Because Frank Oz hasn't figured out Fozzie yet. And his voice is weird and different, deeper. And they've talked about this a lot, actually. Oz has talked about it. Henson used to talk about it. That Fozzie Bear was a real problem when the show started. Here is a guy a bear, who's really bad at his job. And the entire premise of the character is he goes out on stage and humiliates himself every night. They had a really hard time trying to find a way to make him endearing and lovable and funny and not just be sad and pitiful. <laughs> and I think you see in this episode, Fozzie's kind of sad. Yeah, they aren't laughing with him, I would say. No, like even, even the behind-the-scenes cast is a little mean to him because he can't quite... Uh, uh, he's just, again, I like the idea he's supposed to be a bad stand-up comic, and that's not going to go away. That idea is going to stick with Fozzie, but he's going to get so much more likable, even as the season goes on, let alone the series. And and his voice is going to be better, but it, it is it is worth noting that his voice is definitely deeper in this, and that's just because Frank Oz was still figuring out the character. We return to, we have another At The Dance. You know, again, not my favorite segments, but we haven't had the day. But at the dance did have one of my favorite jokes of the episode. It had the dirtiest joke of the episode. I think. Would you be interested in seeing the five temptations? Uh, could you just show me a couple? I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed at the end of this week's at the dance segment, it ends with Mildred kind of gets her head stuck in the chandelier. Yeah, that seemed kind of unfortunate. <laughs> that doesn't feel like it was scripted. Because, like, George is still kind of dancing, and Mildred's head is in this crystal chandelier. And what's interesting, though, is Harris does kind of zoom in on it. As the sketch is ending, Harris does kind of do a little push with the camera to, like, isolate so you can see Mildred with her head stuck in the chandelier while she's dancing. But it doesn't feel organic. It doesn't feel like a joke. It feels like something that just happened. And they just kept it in. But uh, Miss Piggy is in that one. Miss Piggy, again, we're early on. So Miss Piggy in this episode is going to be played by both Frank Oz and Richard Hunt, depending on the scene. She was in the in the early, probably first half of the first season. She was tossed between those two guys. They couldn't quite figure out. She wasn't necessarily designed to be the giant star that we think of her now. Oh, she was. Uh, it seemed like she was romantically entangled with the other pig in the dance as well. In the next episode, she even gets a little more intimate with another pig. Hmm. Then we have 
Uh, okay, and so one thing for people to know, so on these DVDs, not everything from the broadcast ended up on the official DVDs. And this episode originally had two Muppet News segments that were cut. They were available only, you know, they were there in a broadcast and they did air. However, they were in the versions that aired on Nickelodeon. So originally what would happen at this point in the episode is... Here's a Muppet News flash. <laughs> Dateline, New York City. A former circus daredevil who billed himself as Boffo the Human Cannonball fired himself out of a cannon yesterday into a crowd of holiday shoppers. Fortunately, there were no injuries to the passers-by. Boffo was not so lucky. Said his wife, the former Mrs. Boffo, I guess I'll just have to pick up the pieces and live my life. <laughs> so for some reason, that's not on the DVD. Then we get to probably, I would almost say kind of the set piece of the episode. Wilkeman is the opening number of the musical cabaret. And it is, it is in three languages. It's in German, French, and English. And the master of ceremonies, uh, who Joel Gray originated, of course, is bringing you into the world of the play slash the movie of cabaret. We're taking the guest star and instead of just shoving them into random musical bits or yeah i mean juliet Prost danced in her episodes and connie stevens did the teenager in love bit which kind of played on her history as kind of a teen idol type person you know as a teeny bopper idol but this time like they literally took the thing they, they took this they took a song that joel gray won both a tony and an oscar for singing <laughs> and made it into a musical number it's in a muppet version of a cabaret in the crowd you've got like mildred and gonzo uh, Zoot, Janice, Green Frackle, Dr. Teeth, which is kind of weird, Droop, which is another one of the Frackles, a couple of Whatnots, and a puppet of Jerry Nelson. <laughs> I thought that was Jim for such... <laughs> there are three puppets that were made by, I believe, by Bonnie Erickson. There's a Jim Henson puppet, a Jerry Nelson puppet, and a Frank Oz puppet. And we will see them later. I actually, next episode, we're going to talk about them. Funny enough, Jerry Nelson not credited for this episode. Jerry Nelson didn't work on this episode. He missed the first three. He doesn't have a credit, I think, until episode four. But they still used his puppet. Cabaret takes place in uh, 1930s Berlin. A cabaret in 1930s Berlin, right as things are starting to get really bad with the Nazis. And so that's kind of the, the setting. And that's why it's in German. And it's in French. And it's in English. And um, it's a, just a very famous song. Probably the most famous song from Cabaret because it repeats the word cabaret in it a lot. Even though it's not called Cabaret, I think a lot of people would just assume the song is called Cabaret. But I think, you know, Joel Gray obviously shows off his talent. The other Muppets sing lines with him, which I thought was fun. He also seemed to be a lot more comfortable with them. I don't know if that was something that was just had to do with his, his stage experience, or conversely, they were getting better at directing people interacting with the Muppets. For this number, at least, he's in, he's in his element. Mm -hmm. This is the song he made famous. There's probably a confidence level that comes with that as well. The way the song works, you know, is that every line is spoken in three languages. But in this version, he'll like say a line in German and then Dr. Teeth will say a line in French, <laughs> which was weird. And then like Jan also say a line in English. Like they're all kind of singing the song together. Mm -hmm. But it's a nice number. It's, it's a very nice number. And again, a very famous number from a, from a great musical. Again, cannot recommend the film version of Cabaret enough. Uh, Liza Minnelli, Joel Grey, uh, Michael York who people know is a Basil exposition from uh, Austin Powers movies. Then we go backstage. Fozzie is still trying out his, his, new, his new joke structure with Hilda. When Hilda loses her glasses and he goes, I once knew a minister who was so religious when he read the Bible, he wore stained glasses. 
That's what he's trying to do. They say a word and he tries to make a, a joke out of it. Slightly Rodney Dangerfield-esque jokes. Not as not as pervy. Yeah. Uh, I was watching an interview with Frank Oz and one thing he thought that he loved about The Muppet Show was that none of these people realized that what they were doing wasn't very good. The Muppets are putting on a vaudeville show in a time where vaudeville is dead. Mm-hmm. And they're telling jokes that would have flown in the Catskills in the 1930s, but this is the mid-70s. And, and Frank actually said he found that to be very appealing about them. They, they just put on the show, but they're, they're kind of not great at it all the time. We have another talk spot where Kermit sits down with Joel Gray and has a conversation, which I played earlier <laughs> during my biography. The whole concept of the bit is that he is trying to ask Joel about himself, and Kermit gives Joel his entire biography, and then Joel doesn't have anything left to say. Then comes a weird number. What did you think of Pafalafaka? Pafa, uh, Pakalafaka. 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 It doesn't age well. No. But I, I'm not sure if it's being more racist or transphobic, which is an interesting place to sit where you know that something's offensive, but you're trying to figure out why it's offensive. <laughs> Yeah, the song is um it was it was a it was a kind of a, a novelty song, but it was made popular by the comedian Soupy Sales, who used to sing it. A tourist comes to Turkey and a woman whispers something into his ear, Pafalapaga, and he's trying to figure out what it means. And it's kind of this love song, and then at the end, the veil comes off and it's a man. He doesn't quite ace ventura it, but he's not happy. <laughs> he's not super happy. I'm neither Turkish, uh, <laughs> I'm not Turkish, so I can't tell you if it's racist, um, necessarily. I wouldn't call it, ra- I don't know if it's racist, but it's definitely dealing in, I don't know, cultural stereotypes, cultural appropriation, I don't know what you would call it. I don't know enough of the context to really... Yeah. It feels wrong, or not wrong, right. it, just, like, it just feels like it wouldn't fly today. It definitely wouldn't fly today, but also, it's one of those bits where I wouldn't want to have to explain to someone if they walked into the room, like, mid-sketch. Like, I know how this looks... We're, we're going to run into this every once in a while where we have an ethnic stereotype that was acceptable then and isn't acceptable now. I think the more problematic element is the end with the reveal that it's this, that it's a guy. The reveal is a mustache, right? And I don't know, yeah. like, I, I wasn't sure if the reveal was that underneath the mask, it was a guy or just underneath the mask was someone with facial hair. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole idea is he's singing that, that, that he's singing a song to this lovely Eastern maiden, which I think is a line from it. You know, mm-hmm. and then turns out it's not a maiden. It's kind of a gay panic joke. It's kind of a, um, a cross-dressing joke. It doesn't feel great. But again, we're dealing with 1976 and we knew we knew we were going to encounter moments like this. Then uh, originally uh, in the broadcast version, we get there was a scene of Wayne and Wanda singing Stormy Weather. That was cut in the broadcast version. They played Stormy. They were singing Stormy Weather and then they get blown off of the stage by the storm. Before they finish it. Wayne and Wanda never finish their songs. That's good. That's the running gag with the two of them. I, I didn't see that one. Yeah. No, I, I said I, I have it in the broadcast version. It was on the Nickelodeon. And now we get back to, we, we go backstage and the gang, Hil, Hilda, Piggy, George, and Kermit have, are kind of like sitting around trying to figure out what to do with Fozzie. <laughs> There's also something like we're... We do kind of feel sorry for Fozzie this episode, but Kermit was actually initially supportive. Like, he he told him to keep working on it, but he didn't shut him down completely, and he might be regretting it at this point in the, the episode, but he wasn't just mean to Fozzie the way a lot of other people might have been. No matter what, Kermit hired these people. Mm-hmm. 
Just remember that no matter there's there's no matter what, how crazy they are, how untalented they may be, how how much of a mess they are on stage. Kermit's the one who hired them. So, you know, he's got to be supportive of Fozzie because, you know, he, he, he brought him on the show. I mean, George actually says he wants to kill Fozzie. George is getting real angry, but George is a pretty grumpy old man. Then we get a blackout sketch that's with uh, Gonzo and Joel Gray. That's kind of not very funny. It was a short one. I think that was that was part of the growing pain of them trying to figure out how to integrate the, the guest more. And how to get in and out of commercial, too. Those blackouts are usually used to get in and out of commercial breaks. And, uh, yeah, it's just a bit about Gonzo. Um, he invites Gonzo to take a ride. Well, he's trying to get Gonzo. No, he's, in this one, he's trying to. Yeah, he's trying to get. Yeah, he's trying to get Gonzo to understand the idea of a figure of speech. Mm-hmm. Bite the hand that feeds him, and and things like that. And then it ends with a joke like where Joel Gray's hat talks. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh I, I, again it was it's kind of like a it's it's very it's I'll say it's very mild comedy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so then Fozzie gets out on stage for his bit. Kermit introduces him and he and Kermit actually gives him like like you were saying Kermit actually gives him a nice introduction Kermit really talks him up that he's going to come out with his new bit how quick Kermit even talks about how quick witted he is and everything what I liked about this is Fozzie actually kind of succeeds <laughs> he succeeds based on Statler and Waldorf's ignorance though you name anything any word any subject and I Fozzie Bear will hit you with a great joke about it don't be afraid, just yell them out and I'll yell them back. Come on. Amoeba. Huh? You said amoeba. Uh, amoeba. Uh, sorry, no foreign words. Next. The word is only foreign to you. Uh, anybody else over there? You said any word. And yeah. he said amoeba. Right. Right, amoeba. Uh, uh, could I come back to that? Fake. Oh. Fake. Fake. He's a fake. 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 Fake? Fake am I? Okay, that does it. Give me that word again. Amoeba! Right, amoeba. Two amoeba walk out of a bar. One amoeba says to the other, say, is that the sun of the moon? And the other amoeba says, I don't know. I don't live around here. <laughs> I did it! I did it! Ah! <laughs> he, he did it. He's okay. He certainly did. Uh, what does amoeba mean anyway? This was actually a softer Statler and Waldorf. Like mm-hmm. I think they're going to get meaner. Oh, yeah. This is more like, you know, because in these early episodes, there's multiple moments where Statler and Waldorf are kind of like, oh, that was good. Or, you know, that wasn't terrible. Or we're still, again, we're still establishing this relationship. It is interesting that maybe as we grow to like Fozzie more, they get a little meaner because maybe he can handle it more. So this week's UK spot, for people who don't remember, the UK spots were the ones that were sh- that were about two minute sequences that were filmed to be to be shown in the uk because they have fewer commercials and this one is rolf the dog as sherlock holmes in the case of the disappearing clues kermit introduces this as the muppet players which is something if you remember with the cowboy time sketch in the first episode he also introduced as the muppet players that there's this idea the muppet players right their repertory company like when they do a they do a little play that idea is going to go away pretty quick. But it's a, a Sherlock Holmes bit. Uh, someone has been murdered. Rolf as Sherlock Holmes. And he brings, uh, who's this, Dr. Watson? Baskerville the Hound. Yeah, Baskerville shows up as uh, Dr. Watson. Miss Piggy's there. Piggy plays a, um, this is a Frank Oz Miss Piggy performance. Hmm. And uh, Miss Piggy plays like the maid. And, and basically, 
What's the premise? Like, basically, Rolf is, like, trying to solve the murder, but the a Gorgon Heap is there, the big mon- monster is playing the butler, and he keeps eating the evidence, right? I don't know how he knew that it was Gorgon Heap's fingerprints on the glass, but it goes from a glass to a picture of him committing the murder to the, the murder weapon. Yeah, and, he, and every time he pulls out a piece of evidence, he, the Gorgon Heap just eats it. And the whole time, Baskerville's looking terrified at the whole thing, but Sherlock Holmes isn't paying attention. Oh, yeah, he's looking out to, toward the crowd and pontificating. Yeah, yeah, he's showing off. And then uh, what basically comes down to is Gorgon Heat ends up eating everything, <laughs> including Baskerville. With the exception of Rolf and the, the corpse, which I think sneezes. Yeah, yeah, well, what I think is, what I liked, there was a clever little joke at the end where, you know, Gorgon Heap, who's clearly the, clearly the murderer, eats all the evidence, including Piggy, who was the witness. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he eats Baskerville, and then Rolf's like, "Well, there's no evidence anywhere, so I'm all I can. The only thing I can come up with is that the man wasn't murdered. That there was no crime here." And then the guy hiccups. <laughs> so actually, <laughs> the fact that he got rid of all the evidence kind of brought him back to life. <laughs> I could see that in this weird way. I think that was kind of the joke. We're like, "Oh, he was never murdered," and you're like, "Oh no, he's alive. He's right." But it's it's that you know, I don't think I don't think we see this version of Rolf again. This. uh Sherlock Holmes, but you know, it's, 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 I don't know. It's kind of cute. I don't know. That was a fun one. Yeah. And then originally there was another Muppet News flash here. Dateline, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Harry Oblong, a retired New York City bus driver, said that he is holding that state as a hostage and will not release it until he has paid $50 million in cash. <laughs> Mr. Oblong, whom state officials say is not playing with a full deck, says that he will not disclose the whereabouts of the state of New York, but does say it has enough food and water to last for 10 more days. We get to, of course, one of my favorite parts every week is uh, Gonzo the Great. This week, this week, Gonzo's stunt is he's going to demolish an automobile to the tune of the Anvil Chorus. The Anvil Chorus is from uh, Giuseppe Verde's opera Il Travatore. It's a very famous Italian opera, and the booze come approximately half a second after he starts. It goes poorly, but who comes in to save the day? Our famous guest star. Joel Grey comes in, and he he explains to, to Gonzo the problem with his act is he's missing. A little razzle-dazzle. And when they break into the song Razzle-Dazzle. Now, Razzle-Dazzle is from the musical Chicago. Played, uh, sung by the character, I believe, the character Billy Flynn, who's the the lawyer. If you've seen the movie, it's the Richard Gere character. But uh, funny enough, though, Joel Grey was not in the original Broadway cast of Chicago, but in 1996, he would be in the revival. <laughs> little little preview. Although, again, not his song. And he sings in it. They, they He sings Razzle Dazzle. And it, it's this kind of cool number where they use kind of this kaleidoscope thing with, with the optics. You know what I mean? It's a very shiny number. Yes, well, it razzles and it dazzles. It uses very kind of um, optical printing and almost feels like it's being shot through prisms at times. Uh, it really experiments with the photography. Basically, the, the, the whole theme of the song Razzle Dazzle is you don't need talent. <laughs> you don't need to have anything to say. You just need to put a pretty bow on it. There's even a line about in the song about not having talent. But you razzle dazzle them, and it'll make you a star. So, um, so had you ever heard this song? I have not. So you hadn't heard any of these songs, right? No. 
Yeah, from the, yeah, yeah. Because it, because because I, I, it, it really does. Like, it is really interesting that it. They're all from musicals. It makes sense. There's even without knowing what they're referencing, the episode had a certain internal consistency. But I, like, I wasn't. I'm gonna say for the most part, I, most part, I wasn't someone that really grew up with musicals, with one notable exception, which is I've never actually seen The Wizard of Oz, but I've seen The Wiz <laughs> way more times than I can count. But outside of that. I, I don't think I saw another musical or musical-related thing until probably around the time I was in college. So you're more of an ease-on-down-the-road guy as opposed to a follow-the-yellow-brick-road guy. Absolutely. You can tell the moment he steps on screen he's a song-and-dance man, you know, that he's just this entertainer. And, yeah, what struck me was how, like you said, how, how right it felt that these were the numbers he was given. He's in it so much more than the others were. But he also, I, I don't think the, the prior two hosts were necessarily uncomfortable. No. But well, you kind of got the impression that they weren't entirely sure what they'd signed on for. And to be fair, they probably didn't. They were stars, but they were people that, that Bernie Brildstein had called out of his, you know, Rolodex and said, hey, I need, I need a favor. And so they probably weren't 100%. I mean, people knew the Muppets at that point. You know, Sesame Street had been on the air for several years and... Obviously, all their appearances on TV through the years. Now, I'll say I also find Joel Grey to be more entertaining than the other two guests that we've had so far. That, <laughs> so. Uh, that was part of the – it's a collaborative effort, so this might be the wrong question anyway. But I don't know who is more responsible for this feeling more integrated. I do think that he is a significantly better showman than the previous two were. He's more rounded, well-rounded. and, and I, But to be fair to them, like I said, this episode is much more catered to him. Right. They said, okay, we're getting Joel Gray. We're going to sing Wilmokin, you know, or we're going to sing the song. We're going to have him sing the song from Cabaret. You know, it's, it's like having Jennifer Hudson on to sing memories from cats. I haven't seen that one either, but that was more of a direct and like personal choice to, to not see. I recommend cats, but you know, I, uh, quick sidebar. I recommend cats only for one reason. It is rare that you see a filmmaker make a mis- make every decision wrong. A-, a director has to make like a thousand decisions a day. And all a real most directors can hope for is to get 501 of those decisions correct. And you've had a good day. Tom Hooper, who directed Hat Cats, made every single wrong decision to the point where it almost feels like it's on purpose. If you've ever heard an actor talk about trusting their director, Cats is an example of a director betraying the trust of his <laughs> cast completely i think if you think about a special effects movie right you know in in uh, scarlett johansson's fighting a monster in black widow or something and and, and she's looking at a tennis ball on a stick mm-hmm. and what she has to do is trust the filmmakers that what she's looking at is going to be is going to look good is going to match her reactions to it is going to make a compelling scene she has no control over that right she has no control over what this monster is going to look like she has no control over what the action is going to look like. She has no control over everything. She has to trust the filmmakers that this isn't going to look stupid. I've worked on a lot of movie sets. Acting is actually kind of a humiliating job. It pays well. <laughs> at least at the top, it pays well. But it's humiliating. You basically spend the whole, yes, bearing your soul and all those things, but you're also sometimes just asked to do things that are humiliating and embarrassing and look stupid. And you do them because you trust your director. You trust that this piece of footage is going to work. You trust that the monster is going to look cool so that your reaction is going to match up to it. 
in cats, he has an incredible cast, maybe one or two exceptions, but an incredible cast who are singing and dancing their butts off. To them, they are in the Broadway musical Cats. And they went and they went and shot this musical. And then he went off and he took the footage that he shot with all these actors and he betrayed all of them by delivering what is an abomination. <laughs> the movie's a sin. To me, it's an exquisite sin. G- give me a movie that bad over a, a mediocre movie any day. Anyway, that's my rant on Cats. <laughs> should definitely watch Cats. Uh, again, I don't... You should not watch Cats and you should watch Cats. It's a very fine line. It's like the Star Wars Christmas special. I still need to see that too, actually. Again, you don't, you do and you don't. Um, <laughs> just depends. But uh, this to me, again, we're only three episodes in, but this is, this de- episode definitely felt like the Muppet Show. And then this and the next one, but for different reasons. And both of them center on the, uh, the guest star. But with Joel Grey, we've got this sort of refined but affable persona that plays very well with all of the zaniness going on around him. He, He's a straight man of sorts, but he's not a uh, a begrudging straight man. In Cabaret, he has this very thick kind of fake German accent that he uses. And I think that's probably the, the key, is just he does feel at home. Some of the best episodes in The Muppet Show, as much as we love The Muppets, feel like special starring the guest stars. Like well, well, like they used to do with Cher or Julie Andrews, right? Like when they would go and do their specials, the Goldie Hawn a TV special they did. It really is guest dependent, but they are going to keep getting better and better at integrating the guests more to the point where eventually we're going to get the guests participating in the backstage stories a lot more. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is a really, this is a really good episode. There's a couple of moments like the blackout. I didn't think was very funny and a few things like that, but all the numbers hit because you got a real Broadway star doing Broadway numbers. And I think that's just, I don't know, makes sense to me. <laughs> you know, you never got the sense that Juliet Prowse was super comfortable doing like the comedy bits. Oh no, not at all. with our special guest star, Miss Ruth Buzzy. Ruth was born on July 24th, 1936 in Westerly, Rhode Island. Um, at, at age 17, she enrolled at the Pasadena Playhouse for the Performing Arts, and she ended up graduating from there with honors. She's going to be active for the next few decades, but her first job in show business uh, was traveling with Rudy Velez in a live musical and comedy act. She was still in school at that point. She did this while she was on summer break. After she finished college, she moved to New York and performed alongside stars like Barbara Streisand, Joan Rivers, and Dom DeLuise. But this was before they were famous. They were all still relatively new at that point. Uh, She got national recognition in 1964 on the Gary Moore show. From there, she shifted to a CBS variety show called The Entertainers. She was on every episode of the Steve Allen show. And that led to her being cast on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Yeah, see, I know her from Laugh-In. That's the main thing I know her from. I had never heard of Laugh-In before I researched this, but it was really entertaining to look into because it's it's kind of like a proto-SNL. But that ran from January 22nd, 1968 to March 12th, 1973. Ruth stands out as the only cast member that was on every episode, including the pilot. And they were. it was a lot of, you know... How many sex jokes can we make, plus political references to things? And it was very, very fast. Her most famous character from that show, and a character that she's reprised in other settings, is a character named Gladys, I'm going to mispronounce this name, Ormfby. 
She's she's playing a relatively young spinster. Her whole thing is that she's going to swat at people with her purse, and there's a real pervy old dude that keeps hitting on her and putting in not-so-subtle innuendos. And that is a character who's played by Art Johnson named Tyrone F. Horny, because there's no subtlety <laughs> like non-subtlety. <laughs> but she would reprise the uh, Gladys Ormsby character on Dean Martin Roasts for a good while. She would also go on to guest star on multiple other shows, including The Muppet Show. And I didn't realize, because I, I looked at her and I didn't recognize her, but she's lent her voice to a lot of things that I was familiar with as a kid. She was a voiceover on Pound Puppies. She played Mama Bear on the Bernstein Bears cartoon. She was on the Smurfs. She was on the Angry Beavers. She also had a role in Sesame Street as the shopkeeper Ruthie, starting around 1993, and that ran through 1999 until... Yeah, she did a lot of Sesame Street, yeah. Oh yeah, she she continued after that particular set piece was gone, doing a lot of voiceover work and sometimes going on in costume. Um, she's done a lot of commercials. She's still alive. She lives in Texas with her husband, where she paints effectively for fun. She's never actually sold a painting, although she's donated a couple to auction for charity. And she does a lot of a lot of general work for charity. To look at her her filmography. She's been busy for a very long time, and she's very good. I'm surprised that I I don't hear her name more. This episode was produced uh, late May 1976, premiered uh, in the UK and in the US that October. Uh, same director, Peter Harris, same writing crew, same four men writing it. I didn't notice any newer returning faces. Sam the Eagle was more prominent in this episode. Because there's actually a Wayne and Wanda sketch. Oh, oh, he's in the talk show, too. Right. Yeah. And we also have a more active animal. Like, we've seen animal before this point, but animal never really, uh, up until this point, I don't think we've really seen full-on animal animal. Earlier on, I think Menomina filled the role that animal filled. I think I saw him in the audience on this episode. From now on, Menomina kind of gets just stuck in the audience. <laughs> he never quite becomes the leading character that he looked like he was going to be. We have our opening theme. The little bit with Kermit isn't there anymore. Again, it was just a blip. So the opening theme song is going to be the same pretty much for the rest of season one. And then our first musical number is by the Electric Mayhem. Which, speaking of Animal, I love this bit and I feel really sorry for Floyd. <laughs> so, yeah, so the, so the Electric Mayhem plays a song called Sunny, um, which was uh, by a Nashville soul singer named Bobby Hebb. It's kind of his big hit. This is a template for Animal Bits. This is not going to be the only time we see this happen with Animal. He was kind of a dick. He kept increasing tempo, I think, was at every verse. Every verse, he starts to play faster. You can never play fast enough for Animal. On the Sullivan show, they did a similar sketch with Menomina. But yeah, so he so they're playing this song, Sunny, which is just, you know, and, and you know, Floyd's bluesing it up like Floyd does, you know. And uh, Animal, and by the end, they're just playing for their lives. <laughs> Oh yeah, they're they're just exhausted. I, I think the uh, the backstage bit immediately after that is it. It was probably Floyd that was just asking Kermit to do something about Animal because he's like, I I have no idea what just happened. Nice, nice, nice job, nice job. Yeah, I will. Okay. Take it easy, Animal. Yeah, they're all a little shell shocked from it. The backstage story of this episode, I think, is really fun. There's a few things about Scooter. One, I like Scooter. I like his voice. I like when he sings. I love I love Richard Hunt, how he plays him. Scooter, however, in this first season at least, is a little spoiled prick. <laughs> that's that's a nice way to put it. Now, I'm not going to get into the Skeeter controversy. On Muppet Babies from the 1980s, he had a twin sister named Skeeter. 
who has never been heard from since. I don't remember that. And I think that was probably my first exposure to the Muppets. They created Skeeter because they needed another female Muppet for the Muppet, for Muppet Babies. But she's never been heard from again. And it's my theory that something awful happened. And they don't talk about it. Where is Skeeter? No way, Scooter! The last time you were captain, the coach sank before it even got away from the dock! Well, nobody's perfect. No one ever speaks her name. Oh, I've got a blue sense of humor. I shouldn't go down this road. But Scooter I genuinely like. But in this, in this first season, Scooter's got, uh, he's got a little bit of a trump card over Kermit. Uh, because uh, his uncle, his uncle owns the theater. Scooter comes in with this giant crate. Hey, Kermit! Scooter! Hey, Scooter, hmm? Scooter, what is this? Oh, uh, that's a crate. I can see it's a crate, uh, but who's responsible for it? Oh, I am. Scooter, what makes you think you can bring a crate into the backstage? Uh, my uncle owns the theater. And a nice crate it is, too. Because Kermit is still a capitalist. <laughs> and uh, Kermit still likes his job. But what's inside the box? Wind up Kermit. May I ask you, what is in it? Sure, go ahead. What is in it? Oh, well, it's a mechanical wind-up TV show host. A mechanical wind-up TV show host. Right. Scooter, that is the dumbest, the craziest, most ridiculous idea you have ever had. Kermit the Frog with a big uh, key in his back. He's effectively a doppelganger. He's kind of like an evil Kermit, and this is something that the Muppets will revisit later. But there is something really interesting about the way that this particular wind-up Kermit is characterized, because... They could have just gone the route where he would have been a soulless host who's an automaton and does... No, he's a jerk. He's not, he's not just a robot. He's a jerk. Oh, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off until we get to that particular bit because he reminded me of someone, but we'll, we'll touch on that later. I like, the way, I like the way that he's performed. Jim's playing Kermit, so I, I, I'd have, I'm not sure if I have information on who is playing the, the robot Kermit, but he does these kind of jerky motions when he walks. Mm-hmm. For some reason... Scooter's uncle has bought this wind-up mechanical talk show host, which, again, is just a Kermit. Apparently, all variety show hosts are frogs. It's kind of weird, though. At the end of the, this particular scene, the robot shoves Kermit back into the crate. Mm-hmm. But then that doesn't go anywhere. No. Like, I thought, I thought like that was going to be something that carried on. But next time we see Kermit, he's just out of the crate. And so um, after Kermit gets shoved in the box, we go to At the Dance. It's a fun At, at the Dance. It's got, I think, one funny part with the um, three legs. You know, not a whole lot happens in them. They're just, you know, a couple jokes. There's a little bit of Statler and Waldorf where Animal gets all up in their stuff. Well, he, he starts, or he, he offers to stretch out, I think it was uh, Statler's legs, which took me back to the, I think, it, I can't remember which pilot it was, but when you actually got to see their legs, because that's unusual. There was the wrestling stuff in Sex and Violence. But for, for Statler and Waldorf in particular, though, you don't usually see their legs. Wait till you see what uh, Peter Sellers does with Link Hogthrob's legs in a few years. And now we have a, 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 a bit that is a is actually, I don't know if you've ever seen, where, where uh, Kermit uh, is getting ready for his next uh, introduction. And he goes backstage and he goes in front of a mirror. And in the mirror he sees... Himself. Himself. This is a bit, this is a Marx Brothers bit. I haven't seen a lot of their stuff. This comes from the most famous Mar- Marsh Brothers movie, Duck Soup. And this is a scene that Groucho did. Kermit is looking at his reflection. He thinks at first it's his reflection. Although he should clearly see the key sticking out of the back of the thing. But, you know, whatever. That's, that's fine. And, and it just becomes a little... I don't even remember how it ends. It's just a little scene with Kermit as doppelganger, right? 
He steps out from behind the mirror at some point. It's just reinforcing the fact that there's a duplicate Kermit running around and it does this little comedy bit. We finally get a Wayne and Wanda sketch. Again, they, you know, they've been cut a few times uh, from what we've seen. Wayne and Wanda come out and they sing a song called Row, Row, Row. I think Sam introduces them. He does. The characters on this program are weird and peculiar and not to be trusted. One of those exceptions, aside from myself, of course, is the wonderful singing team of Wayne and Wanda. They've really rehearsed this one, so they're sure to get it right. Here they are, Wayne and Wanda with Row, Row, Row. I don't actually think Sam has a job. Do you feel like he's employed? by the Muppet Show? Or does he just show up to be the moral authority? (laughs) Like he's got nothing else to do. I could see him being an agent of an outside entity, but not very effective at it. Wayne and Wanda are his pet project. He always wants to bring culture. And uh, so Wayne and Wanda sing a song called Row, 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 which was from a Broadway stage review called Zigfield Follies. They're in a boat and they're rowing. And then eventually they, uh, right as they hit the chorus, they sink. Uh, Again, that's that's how Wayne and Wanda sketches go. Then we get him up at Newsflash. The Atlantic Ocean has just been kidnapped. <laughs> Disappearance of the ocean was first reported by lighthouse keeper Murray Patterson. He was awakened late last night when 500 fish pounded on his door asking for water. <laughs> Authorities suspect that the ocean is being held prisoner in an apartment somewhere in Newark. A ransom note has reportedly been received. The kidnappers are demanding two Christmases each year and a hug from mommy every night. I want to find out that this was a, like the, the ransom demand was actually something that Jim got from his kids. This is something that comes out of the mind of like a nine-year-old. Two Christmases a year and a hug from their mommy every night <laughs> is, what they, is the, their demands. As time goes on, they're going to develop much more into physical and sight gags. Mm-hmm. And these early ones don't. These early ones are strictly verbal. So we finally get a Ruth Buzzy number after that where she sings Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, which was a, a hit for Frankie Valli, who was one of the uh, front men of the Four Seasons. And it's a duet with Sweetums. So the thing is, um, being mindful of different proclivities, as long as everything is safe, sane, and consensual, <laughs> great. Yeah. This is a very particular kind of kink, and it seems like it's reciprocal, because both of them spend this entire sketch beating the hell out of each other. Yeah, they do. <laughs> and she's, she sort of clings to Sweetums like a gremlin. Like this, this sketch is much, the other sketches reinforce it as well, but I don't think any of them drive the point home forward as much as this one, that Ruth Buzzy is basically a Muppet and or a Mogwai, but like. <laughs> See what happens if you feed her after midnight. Yeah. I've seen this particular sketch before. I didn't know her by name, but it's a lot of fun to watch. And you, this definitely could have been done in a way that took a very dark turn. The impression that I got from this was actually, uh, it kind of reminded me of Miracle Max and his wife from The Princess Bride, where they're just that real cantankerous, we hate each other old couple. They don't really hate each other. And Sweetums even ends it by saying, my kind of woman. He opens it by just throwing her off of him regularly, and she keeps coming back sort of like a stalker. But She's a woman who knows what she wants. Let's just put it that way. It's true. Uh, but you're right. And, and at the end, she crashes him with a chair, uh, WWE style. Watch out, man! Good Lord! She does, but a, the opening of it was more Sweetums being physically aggressive to Ruth, and Ruth just coming back and clinging to him until... She wore him down a little bit, at which point she brought the chair in. <laughs> Jerry Nelson here is um, 
uh, this worth pointing out, even though we don't have a whole lot of new Muppets on this show, Jerry Nelson, who was not in the first three, is now on board. And um, he's playing Sweetums. But yeah, that's my kind of woman. Is uh, that'll, that'll come back. Then we get our UK spot, which is one of my favorite Muppet songs, uh, which is I Never Harmed an Onion. I think the thing that I love about this bit in particular is there's no way that Rolf isn't lying, because in order to have the onion make you cry, you have to cut it. Yeah. So he's admitting to all sorts of other crimes, but not this particular one. <laughs> it's a very clever song. I never harmed an onion. Why should it make me cry? And he talks about all the awful things he's done to other food. I'm a sucker for just Rolf sitting down and playing a song. Mm. And if it's a goofy nonsense song like this, I'm totally down. Then we get to Talk Spot. This is just Kermit and Ruth talking. It's an interesting reversal on last episode because Kermit doesn't get to talk that much. I've seen Laugh-In. I haven't seen a ton of Laugh-In. But one of the ongoing jokes in this episode is Ruth doesn't shut up. <laughs> yeah. Right? Is that she? Is that she's a talker. Mm-hmm. And in this definitely qualifies where she goes on an entire rant about her diet, basically, and claims she has no body fat <laughs> and then ends up tickling Kermit. I think you see Jim's arm for a little bit when he falls back. Probably. Yeah, I didn't see I didn't catch it, but it happens. It's amazing that we don't see them more often. Kermit asks if they can chew the fat for a little bit, and she goes off on a whole rant about how bad fat is for you and how healthy she is. And then it turns in. But again, yeah, it seems to be one of her bits is that she just keeps talking and talking, and Kermit just can't get a word in edgewise. She goes through her entire rant, and then Kermit at the end's like, yeah, that's not, I was actually just speaking metaphorically. <laughs> and then it turns into, what tickles you? And then she tickles Kermit. Then there's one I really like. Uh, Fozzie, Fozzie comes out, and uh, he ends up playing the straight man to Statler and Waldorf. I don't get the impression that Fozzie's about to cry, but he might be thinking about it. Hey, come on, come on, you guys. Hey, a lot of these folks want to see me. Well, so do we. You want to see me perform? No, retire. <laughs> hey, look, if, if you don't like me, why do you come here? Oh, because you're one of the top comics in the business. Uh, in the world. In the business world. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Fozzie. This is the relationship between the three of them. Yes, they're heckling him, but the three of them together are a great comedy team. And I think this is the first time we're seeing that back and forth. They don't hate Fozzie, they just heckle him. Mm -hmm. As they point out, they're the idiots that are there every night. And then speaking of Ruth uh, not shutting up. <laughs> this is a great bit. I kept waiting for her to outsmart them, but it turns yeah. out she was just going to blabber. So you have the blue frackle played by, I believe it's Frank. It sounds like Frank playing him. Um, and a whatnot dressed up as a general. And they are interrogating Ruth, who plays like a, she's a soldier or something, right? Mm. And uh, do you know what remind, have you ever seen the Goonies? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Exactly All right. What you're talking yeah. So, so it's exactly, it reminded me so much of Chunk's. Confession in the Goonies. Oh, that was such a good scene. In fourth grade, I stole my Uncle Max's toupee and I glued it on my face when I played Moses in my Hebrew school play. In fifth grade, I knocked my sister Edie down the stairs and I blamed it on the... Yeah, so she's being interrogated by these people. They're looking for, like, what, troop numbers and all this stuff. Uh, some kind of random war. I don't know what war they're in, but they're in a war. I mean, this is post-Vietnam. Feels more like World War II. Give us the information, or we have ways of making you talk. And uh, so she gives them information on the troop, how many troops they have and all this stuff, and then she just 
keeps going. Now listen, we have enough food and ammunition for three weeks. <laughs> the commanding officer's name is Frank Irving. He's a gunnery expert and a former account exec with an ad agency in Philadelphia. <laughs> well, yeah, it's fine. I should do it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, he's 43 years old and has two children, and he drives a 63 Dodge station wagon, and the pilot flying plane number one is Mike Kelly. Oh, yes, he's a, a graduate of West Point, and he wears a toupee. That's enough. Enough already. He got three B's and an A in his final... And at the end, she won't shut up. He's like... Hey, I'm warning you. We have ways of making you stop talking. The scene opened with someone being dragged away for presumably torture. Like, you see a silhouette of someone, and then it zooms in on Ruth. This is just something playing up her comic shops, right? In the in the same way that last episode really leaned into Grey as a, a song and dance man, this is leaning into Ruth Buzzy as a, you know, a sketch comedian. She sings in, this, in the thing with Sweetums, but... This is more about her as a physical comedian. Mm-hmm. And then we have... Kermit's leaving the dressing room, and then Piggy tries to flirt with Kermit, but Kermit's got to run, and Piggy lets herself into Kermit's dressing room, at which point wind-up Kermit comes in, and I'm going to go on a slight tangent, and feel free to cut this out. Nope. After Gene Wilder passed, they showed a double feature of Blazing Saddles and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. In theaters. I think AMC did it. I took a buddy of mine who had never seen Willy Wonka to the theater. And he ruined Willy Wonka for me because the first time Willy Wonka comes out, he turns to me and he whispers, Nick, that guy's got a purple coat, a cane, and a top hat. Is Willy Wonka a pimp? And then Gene Wilder walks down <laughs> with that lean and that slight limp, and I can't unsee it. And the reason that I go on this particular tangent is Wind Up Kermit is effectively Bootsy Collins. And for anyone who doesn't know, because I realize not everyone might know who Bootsy Collins is, he was part of the P-Funk movement, and he's very, very comfortable with his attraction to people, and one of his big things to do is whisper sweet nothings into someone's ear. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I didn't know that about him. And it's, okay. it's such a weird juxtaposition for me to conflate those two personalities, because generally speaking, Kermit is nothing like Bootsy Collins. <laughs> he's definitely not Iceberg Slim. Oh, no, no, no. But Kermit, you know, Kermit's a Mac, though, right? I mean... He is, but Bootsy's particular flirtation style, at least as far as his music would go, there's a lot of confidence, and there's not necessarily going to be a lot of respect for personal space. As mechanical Kermit is whispering into Miss Piggy's ear, and you see her go progressively from excitement to being disturbed by whatever it is he's suggesting. (laughs) This is one of those scenes that, like, it's real dirty. We just don't know what, we just don't know exactly what's being said. And it's better for it because. Yeah, of course. Nothing that they said is going to be worse than whatever we imagine was said in those moments. Hey, you. How about you and me getting together and making some steam heat, huh? Snuggle bunny? Snuggle bunny? Oh. Yeah, look, look, look. Let me take you away from all this. A marriage made in heaven, a frog and a pig. We could have bouncing baby figs. Sure, let me let me whisper, let me whisper sweet nothings in your ear. Sweet nothings. And yes, at first she's a little. Well, we can say we're adults. She's a little turned on. She's a little excited about it, and then Kermit gets a little too froggy, and he must start to say some real dirty stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> like he's. Ex- I don't know if he's explaining some fetishes or. What he's doing? He's going full Christopher Walken as the Continental. Not cooking. 
is the second best thing I do. For me, it is better to make love first than to eat. Oh. <laughs> or we could make love after. Telling her all the things he's going to do to her. And she gets really upset, and then she's going she's gonna to kick his ass. And then, of course, that's when the real Kermit comes in. Uh-huh. And he's trying to explain what's going on. Uh, uh, Piggy, Piggy, uh, l- let me explain. Oh, explain this. Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, I think you, you may have dented him. I don't. <laughs> I marked this down as this is Piggy's first karate chop. It's not quite a full high yaw. Right. But it's close. Because, I mean, she's down with Kermit. She wants to hear sweet nothings. Right. But there's a, there's a line. <laughs> there's always a line. But she's still a lady. You know, Piggy's still a lady. She's a diva, but she's a lady. I don't know what she wants to do with Kermit, but apparently not all the things that he was listing, (laughs) at least not before marriage. It's a really funny scene. Well, she also, I think she ends up hitting Kermit twice because she passes out when she knocks Kermit out and sees mechanical Kermit behind him. Yeah, then she lands on Kermit. Mm -hmm. The frog broker fall. Mm -hmm. Then we get to, I think this is the first time we're seeing the talking houses. Which is just that. It's like three or four houses in a row that are puppets. It, it is very reminiscent of the Mount Rushmore. It is, but there's something about this, like something about the way that this is laid out and the way that it's lit that reminds me of things like People Under the Stairs or... <laughs> All right. Like, not necessarily in the horror. I'm not expecting the couple to come out with like a shotgun or anything, but just the setting and the feel of it, that evening... I mean, I guess this is supposed to be a suburban setting, but... It kind of makes me think of City Projects. I'm not sure why. They're very much like the, I think it was in Sex and Violence that had the Mount Rushmore. I think so, yeah. Jokes. It's very similar to that where you just have like three houses. And they, I think this one was like, my son's very religious. He's thinking about becoming a monastery. I think mm-hmm. it's the punchline. I actually think they're kind of kind of creepy and dark looking, but they're so short. It never registers long enough for it to really matter. Got like a slight Amityville poster. So this part's weird. So then Ruth comes out to introduce the what she says is the the closing number but it's not the closing number i mean it's the last musical number i guess but and she introduces the gogolala jubilee jug band is this the, this is the first time we've seen them yeah over the course of the muppets we're going to see several jug bands country music was very top 40 in the 70s people like Kenny Rogers and John Denver and Linda Ronstadt, all of those people will be on The Muppet Show. But there was this strain of country music. Like, my parents, you would not call them country music fans. However, in the car, we had Kenny Rogers, and we had John Denver, and we had Dolly Parton, and we had Linda Ronstadt. There was a breed of country music that was very kind of top 40s pop at the time. And we're going to see a lot of it on The Muppet Show. This band, though, is just made of a bunch of whatnots. You know, there's no distinct characters in it. They're all just a bunch of whatnots. And they're singing Roger Miller's, uh, Roger Miller, who, you know, used to make like honky tonk kind of novelty songs. They sing the classic, you can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. It's just a straight up musical number. There's the, the old man in the back keeps talking about how you can be happy if you want to. And then I think at the end of the song, he's, you can be happy if the song's over. Yeah, he's the highlight. The, the kind of the old blind guy's the highlight. They're still figuring it out. It's a musical number, but it doesn't involve the guest. As we move forward, the the finale is usually going to involve the guest in some way. Then we go to panel discussion. We've had panel discussion before, I think. I feel like we've had things adjacent. I don't recall seeing this particular set before. 
we've had talk spots. Maybe this is the first time we see panel discussion um, where it's basically like set up kind of like a like, a, I don't know, like a meet the press type of show or something. I don't know how to explain it, but it's Kermit's the moderator and you've got guests on both sides. It's almost like real time with Bill Maher. <laughs> he presents a question to the audience or to the to the panel to debate. And in this, Ruth is playing a character named Gloria Goodbody. And the question that Kermit poses to the group is, is the human body obsolete? Which is interesting, because they were kind of talking about technology replacing humans and stuff. And this is 1976. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Piggy is in this with another pig. It's Richard Hunt, I think, playing her. She's just making out with another pig the whole time. Yeah. (laughs) Which was interesting. Like, they're just going at it. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, Kermit wasn't showing her the attention she was asking for until non-Kermit showed her a little too much of attention. So maybe she's on the rebound. We don't know. Ruth goes on this diatribe about something that's kind of nonsense, but because she puts a whole bunch of, like, long words together in a row, Sam is very impressed. Well, I presume the question under discussion is something to do with the importance or lack thereof of the physiological prowess in this age of growing technology and ever-escalating cybernetic engineering. That was wonderful. And then it just turns into her doing yoga. It's her doing yoga, but it's 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 emphasizing her comedic, her physical comedy abilities, yeah. right? Well, there's I think everyone on the panel goes off on their own tangent too. You're right, though. There was a lot of Sam in this episode. Now that I think about it, because um, he's he's featured prominently in this, especially when she mentions yoga. She mentions yoga, and he goes, "Is that that sour milk stuff?" Because I mean, why would a red blooded American bald eagle know what yoga is, especially in the '70s? Yeah, and then we get to the end. That's all for tonight. Thank you all for watching, and special thanks to our wonderful guest star, Miss Booth Ruzzy. Booth Ruzzy. Booth Ruzzy. Booth Ruzzy. Oh, look at that. I knew this wicked contraption would break down eventually. This is kind of a horny episode, now that I think about it. Yeah. This is a sexy episode. That's a true statement. It's it's a thirsty episode. You got Piggy making out with the other pig. You got sweet nothings. And then there's the whole Sweetums and Ruth bit, which I don't know how else to describe it, but I'm... Yeah, it's it's basically foreplay. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, that's one thing we should be tracking too, right? <laughs> How thirsty the Muppets get. Y- y- yeah. Well, not that, but like you know, we've talked about it ad, ad nauseum. How Jim didn't want these to be just for kids, mm-hmm. and tracking kind of the dirty jokes. You know, the the ones they slip through, the ones that when I was a kid watching the show, of course, I had no clue what was going on. There's going to be a lot of little dirty jokes to get through, you know, like in the last one about the the five temptations. And, but this is a this is a good episode too. Now, what did you feel was the difference though? You said you thought they were good in different ways. So Ruth was never the straight man at all in this episode, and there there's a, a degree of chaos that she brings to it, which I wouldn't say that she's more Muppet like than the Muppets, but she she does have that same sort of frantic energy, and it's arguably more honed or at the very least she's only got to worry about her specific range instead of what all of the Muppets are doing. Yeah. She fits in for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. And again, we're using the script for the episode is taking into account. They've got Ruth Buzzy. So it's like, okay, we get Ruth Buzzy for this episode. What can we do with that? I think it's most exemplified by the interrogation scene, even though it seems kind of small and modest. It's, it's probably the strongest comedic set piece from her. She's pulling the most weight in that particular scene, for sure. Next time. Fever in the morning. Fever all through the night. 
Next week, we will be watching episodes 105 and 106, which are Rita Moreno and Jim Neighbors. You know who either of those people are? Okay. Those are both, again, really good episodes. And I'm looking at the list coming up, and we got some good stuff ahead of us. Even though they're season one, they don't really get up to speed until season two, but like Lena Horne is coming up. Paul Williams is coming up. Florence Henderson. Vincent Price is in this first season. There's going to be some some really cool stuff this season. Since I didn't ask before, <laughs> um, <laughs> everybody should check out our social media. Uh, it's at uh, Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And lunaticdaring.com, which is our website. And you can check out our sources list and, of course, our watch list. Although, again, watch list isn't going to do much good for these episodes. You kind of just have to have the DVDs. Until until Disney can figure out how to pay a billion dollars for all the music rights, I don't know if we're going to have them streaming anytime soon. And we'll uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. More! More! No, I'm not so loud. They may hear you. (laughs) 